Man, I even forgot what I was going to use as my open. Must have been great. I'm sure it was really good. Um, I don't Must know. Have been quest never ending to find that beginning that came before everything. Like kids with Dakotas discover the wonder in the How was your all ages show? It was excellent. That was it, the shows just keep getting better and better. Uh, the we had like uh, I think a hundred and eighty something people buy tickets. Nice. Um, so it was it was a pretty big turnout, and uh, lots of uh, kids uh, came out with their parents and stuff. Like they were kids as young as like three and four and five years old with their parents. They had like ear protection on and stuff. Um, but then there were a bunch of like uh, 12 to 17 year old age group that came out in different big groups with like the parents bringing um, their their kids and their friends, you know, out for a Saturday evening type of thing. Yeah. Um, and like these these teenage kids, man, they were all decked out in Nirvana stuff or they were like cosplaying grunge you know to go to the show <laughs> yeah yeah which is really cool to see um but then they all knew all the words to even like the most obscure stuff that we played because we play a lot of like deep tracks and things that was never released on albums and things like that to fill out the sets you know and they knew yeah. everything and they were just going crazy the whole night um which is it's good because I remember when I was young and I used to go to shows and and just have boundless energy and then you leave the concert afterwards and you want to just keep going off uh, all evening because your adrenaline's so up. So having their energy get my forty one year old man body through two hours of <laughs> music really helps. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, they were fucking awesome. How do you think kids these days get introduced to Nirvana? Is it through seeing t-shirts or do you think it has to be like the parents introduce it? I think it's probably both, you know, because uh, like Urban Outfitters and um, even Target and stuff have a bunch of Nirvana shirts and uh, yeah. different sort of uh, band shirts from like the 80s and 90s that they sell. So I'm sure that's part of it is a fashion thing. You know, and maybe you get the shirt before you know the band or whatever, and then you find out right. later. Um, but two, like, it makes sense because when I was, you know, a young person in the 90s, Nirvana was like relevant to me, but also I was a hardcore fan of Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and a bunch of, and the Beatles and a bunch of other bands that my parents were into when they were teenagers. Um, and so like through that exposure of Stevie Wonder and a bunch of other artists, like that, that was probably more of the music I listened to than necessarily contemporary radio 
at that age. I could yeah. I could like recite the whole discography of Led Zeppelin pretty easily from by the time I was like 13 years old. Um, and so that makes sense because that's sort of the same time difference, you know, between like 2023 and the time when Nirvana was around in like 1994 and the time when Led Zeppelin was really kicking ass in the early 70s. So it, that all makes sense. Um, sort of how it all comes back around. But two, yeah, there's like the other the other phenomenon of the fact that Nirvana ends in 1994 because Kurt dies. And so there isn't this like long 25 year legacy of them continuing to play like Pearl Jam or even Blink-182 or these other big bands from like the 90s that they just kept going. Um, and a lot of the people that are like my age and even like into their mid to late 40s didn't even get a opportunity to see Nirvana live. Like they came through Dallas, you know, like three times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But in, from like 91 to 94. Um, so if you missed out or you were too young or whatever at that period in time, because you were like 13, um, coming to see a, a cover show is kind of the best shot you're going to get at that type of experience. Um, so there is a whole lot of that too, of people that come up afterwards and like, this is like a bucket list thing for me because I never got to see them and no one really plays. I don't know if it's still like kind of a taboo thing. It was certainly taboo when I was younger and playing in bands. Like you didn't cover Nirvana songs, especially like in the early two thousands. That was like sacred material that people would kind of like scoff at you if you like showed up at a show and you covered a Nirvana song during your set type of thing. Um, to where now I don't, maybe just because we're all older, it's not as, it's not as taboo anymore. And there is like this, uh, seeming thirst and interest to have that experience that isn't readily available. Is it something that could be like, people see it more as a tribute now, whereas back then it was kind of like a, like, I don't know, you're trying to use their clout or something for your own yeah maybe popularity um yeah partially probably but like we play no one cared if you played like an rem song or a pearl jam song or a stone temple pilot song during your set or anything yeah, like I guess that maybe was, just be but did anybody die in those bands <laughs> yeah no i mean so. scott wyland <laughs> eventually died from stone temple pilots but that wasn't that was like five years ago um and even like Alice in Chains, you know, like Lane dies in, what was it, 2004? It was, you know, at least a decade after Kurt died. So it was, they had been around a while, been touring on a bunch of festivals and things for years after the, sort of uh, the grunge flash was over. Um yeah, I don't know. It's 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 it was kind of a, just a weird thing, and I maybe it it is just like felt weird for all of us who were like born from nineteen seventy nine to like nineteen eighty four, who had like that visceral memory of Courtney Love reading uh, Kurt's suicide letter on MTV, um, and all that stuff. Like you know, it was almost like uh, you had to wait you know, like 30 years for the, for, for, the, right. for the sun to set on that whole experience for it to be cool, uh, to be kosher to do it again or something. Yeah, man, I didn't know she read that on. That's insane. I can't, obviously can't imagine that happening now, but also seems um, 
I don't know, seems not good to do. It seems like it could be kind of construed as encouraging other people. Well, it was written you know? in a way that was, it starts as like a letter to all the Nirvana fans. Uh-huh. So it's kind of like intended like, hey, whoever finds this, can you just please tell this to all the people? <laughs> this is what's going through my head right now. And, you know, and then by the end, it gets to like the... Oh my God, you know, I'm going to miss my daughter so much and my wife and, you know, all this. I just still have to go through with it type of thing. But like the first, mm-hmm. ha- the first like big body of the letter is a very um, thought out, well written like message to the music industry and to Nirvana fans and in, in general. And then by the end, like the handwriting and everything totally changes, which probably means that, you know, he was getting loaded up on quite a bit of heroin um, as he it got closer to the moment when he was going to go through with it. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Don't, don't take me back to that place. We can, what were his thoughts on God? <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you, you know, pr- pretty, pretty hardcore atheist. I, as from everything that I've gathered, even, even as a young man, which is, that's another interesting thing on Kurt is, just either you have to have like a really traumatic experience or he just had like a extra empathetic, insightful um, personality. But some of the conclusions that he came to on the world as like a teenager are just pretty fascinating, especially when I compare what the way mind my mind was working as like a 16 and 17 year old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean. Uh, upbringing definitely has a, a part in all of that, I would imagine, because I think like I know how my brain works now. And obviously I'm past the age of 25, so it is uh, fully developed and now rotting. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, that's that's what the neuroscience says. Your brain just stops. <laughs> it just gets hard, like, like a yeah. big smooth marble after. 25. Yeah, no more. <laughs> no more plasticity. It just <laughs> takes the other form of plastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it um you're just holding a lighter up to it and it's like, you know, getting that <laughs> that crunchy edge yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um but I, you know, at 16, I think I would uh probably not be a huge fan of my 16-year-old self now. Um but I can see traces of like what I was going for. Like the I remember a big thing I did which is, you know, uh, wholly embarrassing now, but I think on Facebook, like, you know, you kind of back, <laughs> you were probably an adult at this point, but yeah, see, I, I had, I had a, uh, I was in college, so I had right, the ability right. to be on Facebook with all the OG people that were just college people. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I was also, um, I was also about to get married, like in the, in a couple months <laughs> from, yeah. from when it dropped. <laughs> yeah. The like they used to have where you would I don't know if they still have it, but like you would kind of put like you would have like a bio line like you'd have on the left side, I think, like your name and then kind of a bio line and Mm -hmm. then not a bio, but like, you know, that's where people because it evolved from MySpace, So people would put lyrics or whatever right there. Yeah. And I remember like that was it was real popular. And I don't know where you were on your uh, faith journey at that point. But the I am second 
like campaign thing. Oh yeah, you know? yeah. Do you remember yeah. that? Oh, I definitely remember because Josh Hamilton became a big part of that when he was on the Rangers. Yeah, it was uh it, that that campaign it's, bugged me so much because it was is obviously it's like you know I'm second because first is God right. um and and the the Holy Spirit and the Son. Well, I you, know. you sh- they should it should have been I am fourth. Right. I, well, <laughs> Well, for my status, uh, I I put the I am second, but I chose the crossed out text for that, and then put last on mm. the, you know, so I can I can see some seeds of where my current you know thinking is kind of back then, but still in this uh, framework because you know you should put everybody else before yourself. Well, if and you want to, sure that had nothing to do with my mental state at the time well, either. We did learn. If we want to be first in heaven, we got to be last on earth. That was kind of the big rule. Apparently, we were the only two that paid attention to that that lesson. <laughs> you don't um, want to be second on earth because then you'll be second to last in heaven. That's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. The um, yeah. I mean, I was definitely sh- grappling with a lot of things back then. Um, probably not until college was I like fully. Like I remember probably my freshman year of college was like a real like like grappling with uh trying to figure out like am I actually just gonna like be an atheist like is this you know Is it cool Could, should I say it out loud Right right exactly <laughs> Is it okay yeah. to say this out loud Yeah and I was going to Baylor which is sure it all helps. of a sudden become true <laughs> Yeah um and I also like the my uh Sophomore year, because Baylor, the way that they do fraternities, you can't rush your uh, freshman fall semester because they're like, that's going to screw up too many people's grades and get them off on the bad, a bad foot, which is, I think, like pretty smart for a college to do Um, because the people that I knew that went into college and immediately into fraternities and their rushing was the entire semester. Right. Yeah. Like Baylor requires only six weeks of it. Um, which of course, you know, people kind of fudge on the top and bottom of those, but still, um, so you have to do it either your spring freshman semester, or, I mean, you can do it whenever, but I did my fall, uh, sophomore year. And so, uh, the fraternity I joined was a Christian fraternity too. Like ATO is a Christian fraternity. Um, so they claim, you know, they're the, they're the ones that they're like, we're founded on Christian principles. Pay no mind that we're from Virginia right around the civil war era. (laughs) (laughs) We're, we're about brotherly love. Right. Um, and so that was also something that was like, I was around these people that I was, uh, you know, friends with and everything. Um, but they were way into jesus and i was even in high school i was not into jesus i was i was the I, like i didn't need to go to church because you're you're like selling merch in this place and that feels like yeah you yeah. know some tables should be flipped kind of stuff um but that's like kind of my crossing over and all of that kind of stuff and it's in college that i started obviously looking at different uh religions way more um and studying that stuff and i had like a world history class that the teacher or professor i suppose 
um, she was a good professor, but also really into Second Life and mm. would like show us her character on the projector and like give us extra credit if we also joined Second Life and then became friends with her or however that works. That's how you practice heaven. Right. Um, and so, uh, but she, I don't know if it was subversive or what, but she, um, like, in order to teach us world history, just had us read, like, all of the kind of creation myths of all of these different types of cultures and stuff. Oh, okay. Um, which is kind of, I think, the lens that I am approaching all of this stuff of, like, how does, how do these different beliefs and different types of gods, like, affect the society or interact with the society? Um, or it's just things that I find kind of interesting. And kind of which one, uh, what it's the chicken and egg thing. Like what happens first? Is it like, right. yeah, yeah. is it society that then has to like push, create the, this sort of moral framework of spiritualism and then thwart it back on its, on its people? Or is it, uh, a thing that started way before then and then society sort of rise emanates from this uh this sort of religious perspective i'm interested to see how we both research this because i think we did it in both very different ways <laughs> how we yeah, approached our research so. on this one um yeah <laughs> so like for me uh or my my quick two minute uh journey was very everyone knows my fundamentalist you know background um with with church and everything it was like uh 15 and 16 years old when I had like my my big existential crisis of thinking like all of the years of believing that any misstep or any poor thought or anything would be the thing that would damn me to eternal hellfire um just it eventually became too much for me to deal with and I had like a total breakdown um like crying in the fetal position in the kitchen and my mom like found me there like three o'clock in the morning was like what's going on I was like I don't know I most of it was because I was going through like a bunch of hormonal changes through puberty and so all of my thoughts were about like fucking (laughs) and (laughs) like uh that was a thought crime against God you know that was like a you're going to hell type of thing and the only way that you know in at least in our Baptist circle that you could you are saved by grace but like the repentance is and this this continual getting right with God thing to let him know that you are a terrible person and please just keep bestowing your grace upon me is like a part of the ritual of the faith um and I was just like I was freaking out because I was on my knees like praying for hours and I just couldn't feel it anymore. Like whatever the feeling that I was supposed to feel like I was supposed to, like he was like calming me down. Like it's all going to be okay, Josh. Like, yeah, yeah. That wasn't coming into my chest. Like the thoughts were still there. I couldn't, (laughs) you know, type of thing. Um, and so that's really when I sort of had, a when my, my parents only, um, advice to me was, well, repent harder. And, um, you know, that just didn't seem to work. And that's when yeah. I started hanging out with um, other groups of friends more and like trying to not be at home all the time. Um, and, you know, that started to 
really explore different versions of what reality could be rather than the very rigid um, way that I had been forced to see the world my whole life at that point. Um, and then by the time I get to college, uh, like I am totally into astronomy and, and um, physics and all that type of stuff. And I'm you know, I've asked all, done all the questions about how the flood, it can't be possible because, you know, like everyone would just suffocate. There's not enough, you can't have that much water in the atmosphere falling from the sky once. <laughs> like, uh, you know, different things like that. And then just like, look at all the number of species. Like there can't be that much speciation in 4,000 years. Like, sorry, we would just be seeing like animals just pop out of out of thin air into existence like hundreds of them every day if we just had 4000 years to get from Noah's ark to here to have all these animals that we still have not not including all the extinct ones <laughs> yeah and stuff like that so that you know that really bursts all those bubbles um and by the time i was like 24 is when i really started giving it back hard to my to my dad and my parent and my mom about like all the bullshit. Yeah. Having my rebellious moment. I mean, it was, it was in college that like I was back at my house, uh, my mom's house. And that was when like, uh, we had the conversation of like, you know, she, I don't know if she still does at the time she believed that, uh, God was talking to her through clocks, um, by like <laughs> whenever she would look at a clock and it would have a certain time on it. Cause you know, that's what happens with clocks. Yeah. Uh, she would think that was God telling her to go look up in the Bible, this like kind of like a reverse numerology thing. Um, and if you wake <laughs> up at 3 a.m. or 3.33 a.m. and you look at the clock, you know, that's the devil talking to you. He's trying to get you. Right, right. Yeah. It's a wonder how QAnon got the legs to <laughs> sprout. Uh, so I, you know, she believed that uh, God uh, was talking to her and um, which I think is not that rare of a thing for Christians. They think God is talking to them, you know? Well, especially if um, you've been in the faith since you're a kid, like, yeah the things that you think as God talking to you as like a five-year-old because your parents told you it's God talking to you, um, <laughs> you, you like just apply that to the rest of your life. <laughs> right. Much. Right. Yeah. And if you have like, you know, not the best relationship with your parents, then you are in, you're in sort of that relationship where you're trying to like get their attention or their love or whatever. You're going to dive in even harder for right. that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, we had the conversation of like, well, if, uh, God told you to kill me, would you? And she was like, God would never do that. I'm like, that's like a, the founding that's story the, of the God. The number one story here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, it's, they do it twice. Like that, they, yeah. they do it first, <laughs> first with Isaac. And then we do it again with Jesus. I mean, it's kind of done. <laughs> Both OT and NT yeah. are really into this killing your kids thing. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't like he wouldn't do that because that's now you know uh, cliche. <laughs> it was more thinking he wouldn't do it, and I was like, well, he he has done that before, so would you? And uh, to hear your own parents say, then yes, I would <laughs> yeah. kill you is uh, it's about high time to stop spending 
much time in that house. Um, I'm gonna sw- I'm gonna guns. swing this knife so hard down that only an angel with God's power right. could come down and stop it from going into your chest. That's yeah. how I know it's real. <laughs> That's the faith. And so, and now <laughs> during that conversation, I remember because we were having some conversation in the car, and that was when I was like, you know, um, like. Try. I was trying to be like, you know what? Instead of hiding this from my parents, I'm gonna be an adult and I'm gonna talk to them about this. And you know, it, it took 30 minutes to realize, oh no, they'll kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe we'll keep this to ourselves. Um, and you know, like my when I was in college and going through that, my sister was uh by herself at the house, and I remember she'd like got real into church and um she ended up going to like dallas baptist and then transferred to azusa pacific which is a another christian school out here and um so she was like hardcore christian and then i think her time in college she was just kind of like this is all kind of weird and and then so we it's weird because in our family my my grand all of my grandparents were all dirt poor. Um, mm-hmm. And like my my uh, mom's side grandmother, they were so poor and they had, she either had, I think she had five siblings. Like she was the youngest. The three oldest siblings all dropped out of high school. Um, one of them, I think, dropped out of middle school so they could start working so that they could put money back to the family so that the youngest two, her and her one-year-old or sister would be able to complete high school. Okay. And they had, they were like the literal, like had two dresses and then exchange dresses every other day, mm-hmm. uh, going to school kind of people. And, um, so, uh, you know, you would think those people can be super religious, but they were like the, we don't have time for religion yeah. <laughs> kind of people. They were all like it's practicality it. and pragmatism. And my, my grandfather, he, his family was poor and they just saw church as free childcare. So mm-hmm. that's how he became a Christian is just, his parents were like, yeah, take him. Like <laughs> you're bringing him back at sundown. Fine. That's great. But then we have a day to ourselves. Um, and then my mom's generation, they're all, super into it and then me and my sister are like no this is stupid like it's weird how it goes through that cycle um i don't know i guess there's well, not there's, really there is to it, there is like a pop culture element of it too and i think that yeah. was a big deal for the uh our parents generation like especially if they were if you were a little bit too young for like the summer of love and the hippie time Mm-hmm. So you like came around more in the late late seventies type of thing. There was like a whole Jesus freak movement, and that the rise of that the evangelical church and the evangelical movement in America was a big deal. Like from Billy Graham all the way down, like it yeah, was yeah, a yeah, huge. Yeah. It was a uh, a a cultural moment of these of everyone kind of coming together and like uh, ha- having this big kind of zeitgeist about the whole deal, um, and so I, I I think that there's part of it that certainly is, um, you being a product of whatever the time was that of the shit that was going on around you. Like obviously now with uh, 
more in the information age of our generations, religion is on a decline, but that's probably just because there's a lot more information out there for everyone to glean from and be like, wait a second, it's easier to be a skeptic. It's it's way harder to be skeptical in the past. Yeah, 15 years ago, it was like, at least in Texas, it felt uh, like you shouldn't tell people you know, you, like even like questioning things. I don't know. My like my fraternity was real weird. There was like a a guy gave some like a uh, bawling speech in front of everyone because he had uh, been having like impure thoughts and had been like looking at things on the computer. So he decided and then he invited everyone else in the fraternity, which, of course, I didn't do. Um there's this program you can download on your computer that's an accountability program and you link it with another friend of yours and whatever website you go to, it gives them a list of all the websites so that they can keep you in check and make sure you aren't looking at things on your computer you shouldn't be looking at. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) So like, yeah, there's, you know, it you don't feel necessarily safe around those people being like... (laughs) You know, the flood stories happened uh, in like almost every single uh, religion. So um, I don't know. I think for this kind of stuff, obviously, there's like plenty of qualifiers that the religions we're not familiar with. We're definitely giving a more generalized view in the cultures and stuff. You know, I'm I'm not a Canaanite, so I don't uh, <laughs> understand right. well, all that, of those things. I think that's as far as the way that I approach the research and i i think this is a good way to start is yeah you have to put yourself first in the mindset of what it's like to have an a non-literate society and a non-literate culture and not not in a way that that means that people that are illiterate are stupid or ignorant or um the way that most people uh and especially the, the way that early 20th century researchers would portray um, Neolithic and Paleolithic and hunter-gatherer cultures as these bunch of buffoons that, you know, were grunting and had no idea what was going on. Um, and in a way, the way that portrayal, like we talked about in the Ancient Apocalypse Graham, he- Graham he- Hancock show episode, uh, the uh, there is a strict bias by a bunch of white westerners throughout the 20th century that try to take the religious um principles of the time like in the in the 20th century and then cast it back onto all of the archaeological evidence as some kind of significant thing to help define that see this whole idea of Christianity is a God that was historically involved with all of these people's lives and we can trace it back type of thing. Um, and that's just uh, strict bias. It's pretty racist bias too. Um, and we have to, like we talked about in that episode, you can't know the significance of things unless you know the intent. And so when you're looking at archaeological evidence, especially from pre literary times there's nothing written down so for you to determine the intent intent from any of the archaeological findings is um 
is is difficult. So to define significance, especially when it comes to uh, a deity or spiritualism or animism or um, as even like a lot of the people were into in the early 20th century, like finding all these cannibal cults and all this type of stuff, it's it's pretty much hogwash. Like there's no way that anyone could possibly know. But two, um, the those interpretations are incredibly biased by the people that were trying to make them at the time. Um, so one, think about what it would be like to not have any writing. You have language, you have information, you have um, 100,000 years of like homo sapiens that are working together and living at the same time as Neanderthals and Denisovians and um, other erect homos that are going on during this period. Um, And they have the ability to communicate with each other and they have the ability to not die instantaneously all the time. They have the ability to have culture. They have the ability to know how to navigate far reaching distances. Um, And so you have to think, what are the mechanisms by which anyone would be able to retain this knowledge? How do you encode knowledge without any kind of writing? And that is where you just got to kind of think about different oral traditions and this is we talked about this a little bit in the memory episodes that we did, I don't know, back at the very beginning of the podcast. Um, there's this uh, scientist from Australia. Her name is Lynn Kelly. Um, and I guess it was like 10 years ago now, she had a book come out, her big um, academic book. And it talked about her main focus was like on studying Aboriginal cultures in Australia and then also like the Pueblo culture in North America, um, the Inca culture in South and Central or in Central America and um, the different uh, hunter gatherer tribes from the Rwanda area of Africa, because there's still holdovers today of those tribes and cultures that still practice in very similar ways to what they did six, 10,000 years ago. Um, so the idea is for her, for her research is focusing on orality and the genesis of her PhD was going to Stonehenge and being like, okay, I don't, I'm not jiving with all of these weird uh, spiritual interpretations of this deal and how this is uh, interacting with the idea that they're worshiping the sun or worshiping the moon or things like that. This doesn't necessarily correlate with what I, what she had learned about the like song lines of Aboriginal tribes in Australia. Most of what was going on back then before written words is memorization and memorization is done by creating a narrative or a story or a theme that is can give you very specific precise information that you can remember and pass down through multiple generations so we're not just talking about like the way that we memorize things we're talking about using the landscape as a way to tell a story so that you can know every single part of it Using using um, a pathway with the elders going along along the path, singing a song that tells you exactly where to go in order to follow the game that you're hunting, tells you where to go to find the best 
um, types of food in a drought. And what happened is when people get the direct sort of interpretations of some of these songs that have been carried down over the generations, they take a literal interpretation of whatever the song is saying because we think in a literal way because of the way that our language works with writing. Um, And we forget about things like metaphor. Whereas when we talk with each other in our, in our oral tradition, all we ever use is metaphor (laughs) for for the most Mm -hmm. part. And so like when we say something is going to be like, uh, you know, you say something heavy is like, oh man, this is our D-Day or something like that. Like we know exactly what that means because we know the whole concept of the history of World War II and how pivotal that moment was and everything. So we can just say that about another thing and we can understand all the visceral emotions that go along with that thing. Um, so when we, when in those songs and in those past um, oral traditions, when people are talking about magic or they're using mythological type of ways of describing animals, it's not that they're worshiping them or that they think that there was a uh, some sort of mystical power that made things happen between them. It is a very specific way of describing information that is like taxonomical information, that is husbandry information, that is how how you can classify plants that are going to poison you or not, how to know exactly which trail to follow, which sounds different animals make um, so that you can know how to hunt them. And based upon the sound, you, you they mimic the sound in the song. It's not them wailing uh, at some unknown beast god. They are actually communicating different sounds that animals make when they're in different stages, whether it's a threatening sound or if it's a harmed sound or all those types of things. Um, so when she went back and started um, really researching this stuff, her idea after she goes to Stonehenge is, this is just a memory palace. This is just a memory space that when the Neolithic cultures started to settle and so they weren't as nomadic or even not nomadic, but like a mobile where they're just moving from place to place based upon the seasons. Um, when they start to settle, you still have to have a way to tell the stories that people used to tell along a, you know, 1000 kilometer journey. Because they used to be able to use the landscape along that journey to tell the story that's not just the story of all those things, but all the stories of how to heal people with plants, the stories of the ancestors, the stories of the previous people who were in the tribe, all of that stuff is told upon that walking journey by when we pass this rock, that lets us tell this whole story. When we pass this fork in the, in the trail, this that tells us this whole part of the story. And when you lose the nomadic mobile mobility from the paleolithic into the neolithic you have a bunch of these structures start to pop up like stonehenge like the nazca lines like the other things that we talked about in the ancient apocalypse episode and what is more likely if you're looking at it through a practical pragmatic lens of the people that needed information at the time they were creating a space that now is the representational reality of what that journey used to be. So like Stonehenge, you can walk around the stones and every stone has a different characteristic to it. And as you go around those stones, you're telling the same story that you used to tell on the 
1,000 kilometer journey that you used to take. And that is a way of preserving the knowledge. Um, it's encoding the knowledge. It's the same shit that we do with our iPhones. Like, that is that methodology. So when we're talking about religion, it really comes down to the power of information and how that sort of becomes um, monopolized as societies and cultures start to become more sedentary. No longer is it like this egalitarian share of information and like an elder finally amasses all of it by the time they reach like 40 or 50 years old. Um, and so then they're passing it down to the youngsters and the youngsters are learning all the stories. So by the time they're 50 years old, they have now know all the songs, know all of the space memory places. They know all of that stuff so that they, the general knowledge and scientific information that has been gained by the culture is not lost. When things get sedentary, um, people start to realize that they can monopolize and commodify that information power. And that is when you don't need to take all the kids on the journey all the time. So not all the kids are learning the story all the time of, of the tribe. There is no more egalitarian share of power and you get this inequality. You start to get a, a, a power dynamic of an aristocracy and, uh, <laughs> and poor people and all right. this dynamic where the information is held and it's special information that only certain people can have access to, which makes them powerful. Yeah, the the perspective of understanding religion as something that's an outgrowth of like the economic activity of a group of people is really the one that I'm trying to hold uh, throughout this entire thing because it's integral to understanding instead of just like being a, a voyeur and being like, well, isn't this weird? They thought, you know, uh, cows were sacred or whatever, which I think, you know, like a lot of, uh, at least American culture, but I guarantee other cultures do that kind of stuff when peering into other societies. Um, it's, you know, it's better and it makes more sense to understand it as like a function, you know, whenever I'm talking about like the 30 years podcast and how illuminating it was to start thinking about it as like, Religion is like what they did for fun back then. That's why everything is, their entire culture is couched in religion, mm -hmm. in Christianity. Um, so they're having a war over land, but they're saying it's because you do the Eucharist wrong. You know, it's, right. and, and they actually do still believe, well, you do the Eucharist wrong. So, you, you know, <laughs> right, you, right. you don't deserve this land. There's like this, um, there's a, a, like some, well, I'll get into it. There's like another myth um, that plays directly into that kind of stuff. But I think the thing that uh, is, you know, something that I'm I'm trying to hold throughout this uh, is just that perspective that not only does it come out of the economic conditions of a society when you're talking about um, maybe humanity at large, hunter-gatherers, it also is localized to the economic production and spots you know it's like the we started standing upright so then our hands were freed to use tools um and we started uh using tools which then enabled us to like have more food which then enabled our brains to grow it's all of these things work in concert together it's not our brains got big and we we're like well what if i just walk on two legs right like, right 
which I think, you know, whenever we were talking about evolution, I always try to make sure this point is clear. But that's how people a lot of the times explain things like evolution. They're like, well, you know, um, the snake has like uh, red and yellow lines touching each other because it's poisonous and it wants to show you it's poisonous. It's like, no, that's like a weird result happening in correlation with being, I guess, venomous. You know, it's it's one of those things that it's like, you have to have this perspective of these are things working in concert and they're used in uh, storytelling for, for cultural and legit reasons, you know, like mm. um, there's a reason that they're telling this story. It's not just fun to tell this story. Right. And it's not necessarily just to tell a story of like, well, yeah, we wanted to come up with a story of why spiders spin webs. So, you know, um, it has something to do with like this uh, Greek princess turning into a spider, you know, like it's it's not just because it has like significance to it that we're alien to but we can try and pluck out things like that yeah it, the uh, in um in uh lynn kelly's research which i i'm reading her book again like i read it way back then um and she came out after the dissertation was accepted by cambridge and she published a uh non-academically heavy book that still has like all of her research in it but it's more for just like lay people to read um called the memory code and it's very good because it's it's not like specifically focused on religion it's more focused on all of her research to uh to show that this is like it's not just one aboriginal society that did this it was everyone all over the world for a very specific time until writing came up and then specifically show like how even into the renaissance there were holdovers of this methodology of teaching children like how to learn things and about the renaissance is when it kind of all just goes away like it's we don't do it at all anymore and so it seems very weird to us now but except when you start to think, oh, wait a second, I, d I can't do the lyrics off the top of my head to a thousand songs, but I know there's a thousand songs where if I hear the first chord of that song, I can tell you every word to that song. Yeah, yeah. But in the in a moment right here, I can't just tell you all of it. It's because the way of our brains work, we have to have these priming moments that like then unleash this whole little library of knowledge that we had stored away but we had to have the trigger to open that to unlock that library so when you have when you have the idea of like aboriginal song lines and that they're over thousands of kilometers long it's because every step of the way you're not remembering the whole song all at once every step of the way reminds you of the next part of the song which allows you to have that tons of information stored in that and the fact that right now our brains still work in a way that we have a bunch of useless pop songs of our whole life that are just stored in there like and they'll be in there until we die yeah but that is a great way of encoding information especially if you don't have a uh, manual encoding tool where you're scratching the information down on a piece of paper <laughs> to remember yeah, it yeah. later yeah um and it's you know, each each of these different cultures have different types of things going on. Like the 
and I guess we can start getting into it, but like the the cultures of uh you know in you have hunter gatherers that exist for I mean, there's still some groups of people that I guess could be categorized mm-hmm. as hunter-gatherers. Yeah. Um, so obviously they existed back when civilizations were starting to be formed. But in places like um, Mesopotamia, where, or in you know, just the Fertile Crescent where civilizations begin and cities, what we would recognize as cities begin to form, and they start to have stratification of labor and uh, hierarchies being formed, their gods are going to be similar in that way and totally different than how hunter-gatherers are going to view gods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there's no uh, concept of division of labor in that way for hunter-gatherer societies, um, you know? So, again, all of these things are just very contextualized, um, but dependent upon what that culture or society is doing and going through so right and there's all the qualifiers (laughs) yeah well the the you know the big things to push back on at the very start are the ideas of um that there that burial of uh your dead and having some sort of ritualistic burial practice, which you can see in the archaeological record because we're digging up holes and finding bones, um, does not necessarily mean that there was a deity, religious practice, or spiritual practice involved with that. Um, Just because we now see it and then we go back and dig up graves from the past does not mean that anyone in the past thought of it in the same way that we do now, whether that's in modern religious tradition or however you want to think about it. Um, and so to run with the stories, especially the things that I learned when I was young about, you know, that there were all these shamans and they believed in all this mysticism and, uh, and they're basically witches and, uh, all, all these type of, believed in um in these supernatural occurrences of possession and or even which implies that like uh hunter gatherers and people in the early neolithic period like had a concept of what a soul was or anything like that there's just no way of really knowing that um and to go in there with like this inferred idea that there was some this real spiritual connection is um just pre-biasing any of the research that you do. Um, So even in where they find like massive caves full of skulls and people used to say, oh, this is obviously some kind of cannibal skull cult because we can see that the skulls have like a little spot removed where they ate all the brains um, is not even very accurate because we do have existing uh, hunter-gatherer cultures who they're not cannibal cults, but they carry around um, different body parts of the dead, of their dead relatives and loved ones as as tokens and remembrances and whatever. So they might keep a hand or a finger or a whole head, and then they store those <laughs> later as, as remembrances, as ways of remembering, keeping the memory alive of either that person or some other knowledge that that person bestowed. Um not necessarily as, oh, we have to eat this person's body in order to retain some magic that they had. 
which is a sort of modern interpretation looking forcing that back upon the evidence um so there's like lots of lots of little things like that that have fucked up the our ability to even uh research some of these things because the interpretation has not been scientific um it has been a whole big jump to conclusions methodology for most of you know uh the 20th century archaeology leading into the 21st yeah i think the the ritualistic practices and stuff like that is um you know there there's so many different examples so i didn't like narrow down on any one group but just things that you kind of can uh confirm um which again like you know just starting off like solar or lunar sort of worship and stuff like right. that um those sorts of things obviously it, it's a marker throughout that period of time of you know when the sun is at this point in the sky we're definitely planning on going farther south because the food sources that we're going for are going to be you know cropping up and all that kind of stuff um so i don't know is there is there like specific what what can we take like you know uh culturally from those sorts of things that are those big things like the sun or the planets stuff like that so like in the pueblo society um in their culture they obviously have like a mythological story about the sun mm-hmm. but it's not even in like the 1800s uh before you know the trail of tears um and things like that totally decimated culture um of of native americans the uh there there are in, um translations of like their songs and myths and the they talk about yeah we don't believe that it's like real supernatural magic we just made a story that would be easy for everybody to remember so now we all know that if we're going to plant we have to do it at this time because if you do it a little bit before or a little bit after the seeds don't germinate and in the mythology in the story about the mythology of the sun there is very specific information about what seeds you can plant where you got to plant them like it's it's actually like a farmer's almanac of very specific scientific <laughs> um agricultural information and the western culture at the time just ran with oh man they're just obsessed with the sun they think it's magic <laughs> you know <laughs> Which, I mean, it kind of is magic. <laughs> right, right. Um, but they know, and they talk about this too, in their, in their hunting rituals, the, the song and dance inside of the hunting rituals talks about also this magic. But the, it's not that any of the people that were doing the ritual believed that it gave them some sort of supernatural power to have a successful hunt. It's more of, this story helps us remember where and how to take down certain game. Not only that, it's very specific on the dissection of game. Where to cut, where to not cut, because you will release like bile and <laughs> parasites all over the meat and then you can't eat it because it will get everyone sick. They have very specific um, ritualistic stories about 
when they went through an extreme drought period and were testing plant by plant which ones they could eat that were still growing out of the ground and stories about how these people ate this and every single way that we prepared it, they all died. These people ate these, they got sick, but then when we would dry it out and and like turn it into a paste, no one would get sick. And so, so now we have like a drought resistant um, line of information that just in case this horrible drought happens again, we have the story of exactly how we found which plants we could still eat. Uh, it's it's not um, and it's not this idea of a bunch of prayer hoping that some supernatural being would intervene and save them. So what is the role of 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 you know magic and stuff like that? Is there can we say that there were some things like can we confidently say that there were some things that were kind of like, you know, um trying to put a spell on like say an insect bite or something like that or is it just kind of like yeah, some of those things happened but we can't necessarily definitively understand exactly what was going on there so Um, in for example in the healing stories in the aboriginal tradition that's part of this book they talk about how there is a whole song for medicinal properties of different plants and in that story is a is like the story of how they put how some being put the magic in the plant to make it so that it would heal the sick person but that's to mm -hmm. In, in my mind and in the interpretation from this research, it's not to say that you should, uh, everybody should give everything to this magical being or otherwise the plants will stop working. It is providing a, a story to let you know the gravity with which how successful this treatment can be. And then you can always remember the story instead of like having this very literal interpretation of like this plant does these things that's much harder to remember than if you remember the story of the evil evil creature that caused an illness and then a benevolent creature that came and like found this one plant and you know this plant is a healing one because it put a red pigment stripe along the edge of its leaf and that's the signal to know that it's the one that the benevolent God put in to create the a healing power. It's mm-hmm. it's like we use uh you know Hans Christian Andersen stories to tell like moral things. <laughs> it's not like we actually believe mermaids are real, but we learned about like family dynamics and loyalty through the Little Mermaid. <laughs> it's not yeah you know not my flounder. But you can um, see are, you can see how when that information is like egalitarian amongst everyone and it's expected that the youth will learn this information and so we got to put it in a way they can learn it. When that transitions to a hierarchical setup mm-hmm. and then it's much easier for the people in power who have the information to make it such that, oh, it's really just a faith-based belief in the deity, not in the actual information. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, that division is something that I want to get to, but I don't want to cut off like any of your more neolithic stuff. Yeah. Um especially the rituals that sort of uh signify like membership and in-group and everything too, right. I think are um important at this time, but I I'm not exactly sure why it's important other than like 
kind of being, you know, obviously you have much smaller numbers of people at this time, mm-hmm. especially coming out of the Ice Age. Um, you have such small bands and groups of people. Um, is it something that they used specifically to try and keep people within their group? Um, or is it something that's kind of like you feel, I don't know. It, I, I, my interpretation and from reading and stuff, of course, is that it gives you those things that's like, I've bought in to this group that I've been raised by already. So I'm going to do things for these people. Um, and we all have the same thing. So it's also this kind of understanding of this better understanding than, um, I guess a collectivist understanding. We're all in this together, sort of, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's probably the proper interpretation. And also the understanding of the, these, these songs and rituals are containing not just one generation's information. You're talking yeah, thousands yeah. of generations of information that has been compri- com- compiled you know, over ice ages, over extinctions, over mass die-offs, over just we got down to a few people and we had to build it back up. Um, so basically thinking of every person in the group, this is, of course, uh, our looking back on it with our knowledge of computers and everything. But if you think of the group as a computer, then it is important that every individual cog in that group is sharing in that transfer and storage of information because Mm -hmm. at any point in time it could end up that there's just a few of us left (laughs) and if we don't all if we're not all pulling in the same direction on maintaining this line of information then it will be lost yeah yeah okay so it is it's also like just a preservation of that the culture in a way that um sustains it right i suppose and that this is the other interesting thing on it too in in like um different african neolithic tribes there's a lot of archaeological evidence of all these like handheld pieces of uh wood or stone that have uh like beads and different ornamentation added to them lots of them they're about the size of an iphone and um it's not just common in one tribe it's common in lots of them all over the continent and people for a long time interpreted these as like some sort of just ornamentation oh these these uh idiots who are barely they're barely good at art so they just thought like attaching some beads to a to to a piece of wood was really beautiful so they must have like considered that some fancy type of ornamentation and it's it's really not what it is they are memory devices like it is what your iphone is like having that block of wood that has a hundred different beads in a, in a random formation on them and they all look a different color is your way of going bead by bead. Each bead might have a story attached to it and that might be your way of knowing the directions of how to get from one place to another place. But you're carrying the directions in your pocket now. You're not having to do the the walk and have the song singing all the time to know where to go. Or it might be your way of knowing which, which crops you can eat at which times. Or it might be just a way of keeping track of your family history. But it is a memory device where each little stone has a story attached to it and that leads to the next stone and that leads to the next stone. And so once you have 
offloaded your memory onto a th- something that is physical. You've encoded your memories onto something. Then that lasts forever. And so in uh, in the in the book, um, she does uh, where she creates some of these for herself, and she's got one where she knows how to name um, all 407 classifications of birds in her area of New Zealand. Jeez. And it's just because she glued a bunch of beads onto a piece of board and came up with a story for all that taxonomy. And now whenever she looks at it, she knows. She, But she doesn't have to, like, it's not like she can do it without looking at the piece of board, but the board is the knowledge. Um, so those are just, it's just really interesting. And there's not just, like, boards. Once, once you... Once um, sort of archaeology opened that window to that sort of theory um, in the early 21st century, now understanding all these little personal artifacts that are found, not just like Paleolithic and Neolithic times, but even after, you know, um, we come up with written language. Um, there's lots of these little memory devices that lot that people have all over the place when you find these burial sites, people with uh little sticks that have notches in them all all bones that have little inscriptions on them uh uh long pieces of rope that have different knots tied in different sequences on them they're all uh memory devices they're all iPhones <laughs> of of the yeah. past yeah the like encoding the information on things so that you like understand stuff uh makes way more sense I can't imagine doing that, but I have just a bad memory to begin with. Um, I forget where I put my apps on my phone, and I put them there. Um, you got to create a story around it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it always confused me. Have you ever seen those ones where people just like uh, sort it by color? Oh, their apps by oh, that. Would, I mean, I guess there's some OCD people like that that can make sense of the world yeah. in that way. I could never though. <laughs> um. I think like the the stories that are created about things like especially when you're considering like the animal worship aspect of it um, are pretty interesting. And it's it appears uh, at least, you know, this kind of stuff that I'm reading that whenever people started to domesticate animals and plants, a lot of the stories uh, that at least we know about were created to describe the world outside of what they controlled like it was not stories about the domesticated animals so much as it was the story about the lions right or you know the things with horns or wings or claws or whatever um is that and and god help me how many times this gobekli tepe (laughs) kept coming up and i'm just no (laughs) don't take me back um but describing these things is is there the significance that we can glean from it that it's because they they saw like wild animals with horns or whatever as things that we need more information about because you have to be more cautious about it because we haven't <laughs> gained control over it like or- i'd imagine claws and stuff you want to make sure the information is instilled within your society uh, don't sleep on the claws. Oh, absolutely. And that it's uh, not that they don't have control over it, probably, but maybe that the thing they have control over is the information. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're going to 
take all the effort to use like horns from or antlers from a deer to scratch into a bunch of stone like the images of other animals um mm. it's probably much more important practical information that you're trying to convey over multiple generations rather than um you're trying to say tell everybody we believed bird God made everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. You know, like that the reason that you're encoding the information is so that other people can know the story behind whatever the um, hieroglyph or petroglyph is. And then you can glean the information that is a huge amount of massive information that is associated with the story of whatever that representative bird that you etched into the stone is. Not necessarily saying this bird is God, you know. Yeah, there's there's something too in you know, like the kind of worship of animals or respect of animals and stories around animals. Um because I guess it doesn't it's not necessarily like saying it's all gods or whatever, but it's it's these stories that encode information. Uh but there's to bring it to like modern times, um, there's this thing in Japanese that uh, I think most people probably do. Like before they start a meal, is you say, like people don't pray before a meal. Um, you know, some people do, mm-hmm. but it's it's similar in that people say like itadakimas, and the like literal translation of it is just like. I receive this or I like humbly receive this. The concept of it though is to be like um cognizant that of of the life that this thing had. Like mm-hmm. you know if you're eating uh sushi or whatever. Like you know the way that I don't know if people have seen the way sushi chefs prepare things um like squid or whatever or fish. Uh but there's like a really common way of like killing fish before preparing it for sushi because it needs to be extremely fresh to be able to eat it raw. Uh, And it's like they have a specific type of spike that they spend years learning the exact point to drive it through, which I'm sure people who are vegetarian would still say it's not uh, good to do that to a living animal. Mm -hmm. Um, But the concept is this thing had a life so i'm going to make sure it is as quick and painless as i possibly can make it to kill this thing because you know um i don't know understanding that sort of connectedness with all of these things yeah a, res- a, and, a, a mutual respect yeah 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 um so i think like if if that can translate to today um then I don't think there's any reason in saying that it couldn't have existed back then of this like understanding of, you know, everyone's seen the Lion King and the circle of life, but, um, you know, uh, go back and look at those lyrics, pretty impactful stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. You know, (laughs) (laughs) well, and even things like, uh, like, uh, dancing and, uh, stuff like that, where, you know, we might see, um, uh, a a quote unquote witch doctor from an African tribe dancing and rolling their eyes in the back of their head around a fire or something like that. 
and we think, oh, this is some pagan ritual trying to call demons, you know, to to possess people or or something as, you know, modern missionaries do when they go to Africa to try to convert these people to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it does make a lot more sense to see that this is a ritualistic motion that is part of just downloading the information on how to heal somebody like we got to do these movements because people have been doing these movements for a thousand years and that movement reminds me about what the next step is in the healing process of what i'm supposed to do whether i'm gathering herbs and things that to try to heal them or whatever it is um the 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 ritual is the um is the download uh, of going to going to Wikipedia or going to WebMD and trying to figure out what's going on with this person. Yeah, the the I guess I mean how how good do you feel on Neolithic stuff? Because I don't want to jump ahead. I feel good. Um, like there's, uh, you know, we talked about um, Stonehenge and everything. Basically, the Neolithic is the transition period now from yeah. <clears throat> hunter gatherer society to a written language and settlements and the establishment of hierarchical systems between human beings. Yeah. The, let's see, what time are we at? I mean, I forgot, I guess we forgot to mention at the top that this is a series. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the way that I, so I, I asked Justin to make sure that like the timeline kind of sounded good. Uh, and then, uh, his question back was like, well, what are you trying to get out of this? I was like, oh, uh, well, let me think. Just learning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, what is your motive? Yeah. Um, Every, everything's got to have a motive. Profit, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but the the thing that I sort of came up with was we've we've mentioned it a ton of times, or at least I have, saying that I've wanted to talk about it, of Christianity in America, because it's it seems... Uh, fascinating and I want to look into it more Um, but to get to that you have to have Christianity from England and to get to that you have to have this Christianity in Europe and then to get to understanding how did religions shape cultures in that way you need to keep going back so I guess we Ultimately, what I wanted to try to do is get to Christianity in America, but understand how we got here from there. Right. Um, And in the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia is, you know, I, I you can't say it's the direct line, I guess, because all these things got conquered and taken over and things move and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have new age yoga taking over in America, all that kind of, you have different cultures and stuff. Um, but I think being able to draw, uh, examples out of these different cultures can help sort of understand how these things can grab hold and stuff. And as you've mentioned, um, the, the creation of these settlements and creation of then hierarchies and divisions of labor and everything, uh, I think is a a great point to like really draw down on. And in Mesopotamia, that's where we get the first ones uh, between the rivers of the Tigris and Euphrates, um, which you mean the Garden of Eden, Eric? 
Yes, uh, exactly in the Garden of Eden, the peaceful, calm <laughs> Garden of Eden in between these two rivers that apparently have random floods that you cannot predict and kill everything and then cause, uh, you know. It was before plate uh, tectonics. It was set up okay. exactly like it is now. There's been no <laughs> difference or change. 6,000 years ago, that's it. The... <laughs> fascinating that they could come up with that story for that region um or at least steal that story for that region <laughs> uh when it's interesting to know that like the religions of this time um all of the gods which is very interesting how gods resemble the society yeah um, or the rulers of the society <laughs> or the rulers of the society the the gods of the time were extremely volatile <laughs> and uh unpredictable and everything uh much like the the two rivers that would just flood these societies at random times um and i think that is like a main driver for how uh priests in that class were able to separate themselves mm. of I'm the person who's who holds this knowledge of uh, this religion, and I can actually communicate with these gods to placate them. Yeah. Um, so it's it's literally just a power struggle at the top of how can we control these things that we can't control? And when you go from hunter-gatherer to having a uh more village style of living and then these cities and all that kind of stuff you go from dis- using um rituals and songs and dances and everything to remember information about stuff that you don't necessarily know or to explain these things so that you can then know it um or only you the still... literate people can know it because now we've got cuneiform tablets and right. only the people that can read this are the ones that get access to the knowledge. Yeah, exactly. It turns into this, um, you still have that feeling of there's these things I don't know and I need to know them. But if one group can uh, uh, consolidate all of that knowledge, then they're going to be the ones in charge. And that's what we found or we find throughout like Mesopotamia. The priests for at first were like the rulers yeah. because they were the ones everyone was trying to have appease all of these things and keep the culture going. You know, you still like, you're only a few hundred years removed. And back then time, time moves slower or faster or whatever, <laughs> you know, like you're, you have the understanding that it didn't used to just be in the city at first, you know, like it used to be out in the field and there's probably a transitional period as well. Um, so I don't know. That's kind of like my understanding of how the priesthood came to power. Yeah, that's uh, definitely and- uh, correlates also with the um, Neolithic cultures and the of the Druids and everything in, in England and Ireland and Scotland. Um, and the same thing that from the archaeological evidence in Peru things like that, where you have a rise of a priest class. You have a rise of a, uh, of a class of people that hold the information. It's no longer 
elders and it's no longer a sort of an expectation that there's going to be this ritualistic rite of passage that every every child through the group goes through it's becomes ah well you're just in charge of uh you know cleaning the stable <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's all you'll ever need to know trust me i'll take care of all the other things in your life you just worry about this one job and uh don't worry about anything else <laughs> yeah yeah the and the beliefs of this time too the gods had those divisions and the hierarchy and everything mm-hmm. so it goes it's it's this uh cycle that forms between this like kind of spiritual realm and then the reality to just reinforce those hierarchies it's like well why would you then um upset the the natural hierarchy you're saying that you know you can do this better than these all powerful beings have figured out to do it um not not that there is necessarily the uh you know french mindset at the time of unraveling uh, society but still you know what i mean right or and or the idea that you're able to now manipulate the knowledge so that you can control the people when you need them when you need to control them you can use fear of things in order to manipulate people in order to do whatever you need them to do because you've extracted their ability to have access to the information yeah and the the story like the story of Gilgamesh um, where it's essentially the clash between uh, the wilderness and the city um, and then the city coming out on top. um, It then just reinforces that, no, we're doing this now. Like we're, (laughs) we're not going out in the wilderness and surviving out there. um, Despite the, the unpredictable nature of these rivers and uh, everyone dying of disease um (laughs) because we don't understand how to do sanitation yet (laughs) it's yeah uh yeah it's i don't know i think the region too spawns so many religious movements um is there like a reason i guess between possibly i don't know there because there's so many um I don't know, like even don't wouldn't you consider like the Abrahamic religions and everything like and those pre-Israelite religions are interacting with this region? Oh, just like the different um, Assyrian and Sumerians and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and not just that. Egypt is a huge influencer in both ways. Like that's that's the other thing that's going on, even though there is a, a priesthood that's trying to create a rigid interpretation of reality. Um, in these different small cultures, they are warring with each other and trading with each other. And so right. you are getting different ideas um, from these short, somewhat isolated cultures um, are now starting to touch each other. And you will have the ability to share some of the ideas and it maybe not share the gods, but you're going to steal from the, ooh, this god doing this God stuff that they're doing in Egypt is maybe it'll work in Mesopotamia too and vice versa. Yeah. Um, and that's where I want to do next week is Egypt. The Egypt's where I'm going to go next, next week. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think the, I guess, as you mentioned, you know, writing is the thing for elites at this time too. Like the, 
that again goes to show just the trading aspect. The two, the cultures then starting to bump up against each other and interacting with each other, growing to such large scales that you're then needing to record information. And why would you, when you're needing to memorize all of these other aspects of life, why would you then fill up that space in your brain with like, you know, the the trade that you made two seasons ago for this much wheat for this many sheep or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, again, like as religion is becoming a functional part of civilizations to uh, control aspects of the civilization, reinforce things, um, so too is writing just becoming a functional way of offloading that memory so that you don't have to again hold it in your head um yeah you made this transaction well and the other thing is that even though there is leaders that are arising at the early stages of civilization the our interpret our modern interpretation of the necessary of the deification of those leaders is probably not totally accurate either um because in the same way that people would use the landmarks and on the landscape in order to give them uh, places to m- memorize the story of of their tribe. Um, as things got settled, the next thing that you could use was like the lineage of all the leaders that had been in your tribe. And you tell a story that goes with what this leader did to what this leader did to what this leader did. And then that helps you fill in the blanks of, okay, yeah. And this is also what happened then. And we made these political arrangements and then that was went bad. And so even though there is like monuments and huge things to all of these leaders, part of that is creating memory, (laughs) a memory palace for people to be able to go around and remember what the heck happened inside of the society during that time they're just moved from landscapes to using the headstones of like leaders to help them tell that story um so there is probably a good bent of of the cultures at the times that are still doing the the ritualistic memorization stuff they're just offloading it to a different sort of source material not necessarily worshiping the leaders like their gods. Yeah, yeah. And in these regions too, you start to have like the palaces being built. Um, And then you have just the power struggle at the top, um, which I guess is just, uh, I guess I decided to not really write down notes after I read so much about it. Um, So that's- Because you'll just remember it, right? You you turn it into a song. Yeah. Uh, but there's that power struggle at the top between the priest class and the ruling class. And I think, you know, next week when we get to uh, Egypt, there's like that synthesis of the two. Yeah. You can you can imagine in the, the timeline of humanity. Right. All right. Well, we'll do Egypt and other fun stuff next week as we continue down the road to doom. <laughs> yeah, we're on our way to the apocalypse. <laughs> It'll, it's okay. It's it's going to be like Revelation. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. That's what we're that's what we're getting at. All right. Yep. <laughs> Until next week. Bye.